The most powerful thing you can do is to prove to the rest of the world, right, that you can stay in the room together. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Eric K. Ward, a nationally recognized expert on the relationship between authoritarian movements, hate violence, and preserving inclusive democracy. Eric is the 2021 recipient of the Civil Courage Prize, and he's widely quoted writing and speeches, particularly his 2017 article, Skin in the Game, How Anti-Semitism Animates White Nationalism, are credited with key narrative shifts. He currently serves as Senior Advisor to the Western States Center, Senior Fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center, a member of the President's Leadership, Council for the Search for Common Good, Chair of the Proteus Fund, and Advisor to the Bridge Entertainment Labs. Eric co-founded Funders for Justice with Neighborhood Funders Group and has served as consultant or advisor to numerous philanthropic institutions, including Open Society, Tides, and the Brooklyn Community Foundation. Eric and I have publicly agreed and disagreed on many occasions, and I was always taken with his empathy, his openness, and his willingness to engage with diverse opinions. So in this vein, in this podcast, Eric and I talked about a key role that anti-Semitism plays in white nationalist movements, how philanthropy can counter extremism, and much more. Take a listen. So, Eric, you're a, you're an old friend of Jeff, and he spoke yes. for us, and and we've and we've used even with and without your knowledge your writings and and your and your ideas in many settings. Now, what what prompted this conversation? Uh, if you remember, was a Twitter exchange then that you and I had. Uh, we were discussing, arguing really about critical race theory with you, of That's course, right. in favor, and I partially, not against, but partially skeptical about some of the aspects of that. But what struck yes. me was we, we don't have to rehash that conversation. It's, it's for another occasion. But it was a struck, great conversation. It was a, it great, was a conversation. great conversation. I mean, we, we'll talk on some of it. We, we'll talk on, yeah. on we, we'll touch on some of that stuff, but. What struck me really was how civil and empathetic you were in that disagreement. You, I mean, you always assume good intentions. You never said, hey, you're just racist, you know, privileged. You pointed out information without lecturing. And, and as this podcast showed, you were very generous in, in offering to engage further. So regardless of the issue that we were arguing about back then, you know, the, the quality of conversation in the United States and in the world, really, it's, it's going down. So I wanted to start by asking you, what can people do to have conversations like the one we had on Twitter, of all places, right? When people like, you know, so how can we really have conversations in which we listen to each other and we were empathetic and we don't, you know, that that lead us somewhere and not become a sort of a shouting much of denunciation and demonization. It's so great to, to be with you and to pick up on the conversation. I remember the conversation. Isn't it funny 
<laughs> we remember this conversation because and and disagreement because it actually went well, right? Right. It, and it's so rare on Twitter, right? Twitter isn't designed to to have kind of uh, what I call conversations that were like grounded in in radical empathy. It was it was so great. You you could have been so defensive with me, yeah. right? And you entered with like amazing curiosity. So so part of it was. I'm trying to practice radical empathy where I can. And you also entered the space with, with empathy. The first thing you did in the conversation was you, you said to me, I remember, uh, tell me, basically it was a version of tell me more of what yeah. you're thinking. And so you opened up this, this space and I thought it was great modeling. Look, here's why it's important. We have disagreements. Disagreements are uh, important. Some of them are minor disagreements. Some of them are substantial. Some of them are political, right? Some of them are moral and, and value-based. We all have disagreements. Humanity will always have disagreements with one another. What has been important for me over the last two years is, is to remind myself and to, to remind everyone else we're under great stress right now as mm -hmm. uh, as a world and as societies right everything feels very much in fluid whether we're talking about political violence right and and the rise of political violence whether we're talking about uh covid right as a as a pandemic whether we are talking about the stresses on societies right now global economic change right shifts in the environment all of these things are creating real stressors on our lives and one of the things i've come to learn is none of us as leaders of civil society function at our best uh when we're under these these additional stressors and 100%. so the one thing i've been wanting to do and i and i'll say something in in a second that that's going to sound almost uh a counter right, to how we might naturally approach this. But what I've been telling folks is the one thing we can do in this moment is to really uplift the values that matter to us. And the values that matter to, to me most, the, the value that matters most to me is the value of kindness. And I just wanted to approach the conversation uh, uh, with kindness and, and you allowed me to do so. And I'm excited about that. And I hope it yeah. modeled for, for other folks. But the other thing I wanted to say that I think is important, in radical empathy, we should practice our values with those who actually are in, in disagreement with, as some have said, right? Famous folks we, we know, some we agree with, some we don't, but we don't ultimately make peace with our friends. Right. We make peace with, with our enemies, and that means practicing. So let me probe a little bit on that, because yes, yeah. you're right. And you're yeah. not my enemy. No, of course, no, of course not. Of course not. No, 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 no. And and we were we were having a, a disagreement, not a not a battle. We were having an, and not a, and a right. disagreement on on actually was more. I mean, we can explore it later, but it was more on a disagreement of the usage of certain terms rather than on the underlying yes. concepts behind it. We were basically saying very similar things, which is that the semantics of it was was causing the problem. But anyway, just right. but going back to something you said about radical empathy, that for me poses a question which is, yes, radical empathy with people that approach the conversation with goodwill and openness. But just frankly, I mean, what are the limits of that? Meaning, I don't want to have radical empathy 
to a white supremacist or an Holocaust denier or somebody that says that Israel has no right to exist. So, you know, it seems to me that we have a dual problem here. One problem is, yes, within a space to conduct ourselves with, you know, assuming good intentions and radical empathy and kindness, but then how do we define the limit of that conversation? Because I think that then, if not, it becomes an anything goes and, oh, we have to understand the white supremacist that shoots up, you know, a black church or a synagogue, right? And we don't. Yes. Look, I should say this, right, as part of the podcast, right? Being a black American who has been engaged in the struggle for racial justice and equity in the United States for nearly four decades, and being a black American who has actually attended, right, white nationalists and other far-right gatherings, I, you know, folks may may not know that as part of my work for civil rights, right? I, I openly attended uh, uh, gatherings. I yeah, spent you, you time talk with about the it white in, nationalist movement. You talk in about a, it in, in an the, essay called "Skin in the Game," yes, right? Which How everybody should read. Everyone should read. Oh well, or or at least allow them to put it to put them to sleep. But "Skin in the Game." Yeah. How anti-Semitism fuels, right, and and provides an engine for white nationalism is is the essay. And I started off by talking about attending white nationalist meetings and how I came to understand the threat of, of anti-Semitism. But here's something that I I came to learn that I'll, that I'll share. I don't know if it's an answer, but I'll ask folks to to, to hold on and, and reflect on it and take a look at it. For me, what I came to understand ultimately was white nationalist, why I oppose the ideology of white nationalism. I think it's important to understand white nationalists aren't monsters under our beds and in our closets, right? They are folks who we go to school with, who we work alongside, who we shop in in supermarkets. Uh, At the end of the day, white nationalism, the ideology is a threat. And so where I have chosen to draw the line, is in an inclusive society, right? I'm not gonna ban someone and I'm not gonna seek to ban someone for holding a white nationalist worldview, but I will contest, right? The ability of that white nationalist view, right? To become part of the makeup of, of the United States because it is a worldview that is grounded in anti-Semitism, right? The othering, the dehumanization of Jews. And it calls for ethnic cleansing, right? Outright violence. And so that's where I have to draw the line right. in terms of entertaining, right? A compromise or having a serious discussion around white nationalism. But on the other hand, right? I want to stay in conversation with everyone, right? Because by staying in conversation, Right, we begin to shift, shift and shape how we see each other, and perhaps we can realign and find agreement around the values that we have in common, right, as human beings and and as a society. So it's complicated. Where and I it, won't draw the line is yeah. violence, right? right? That that targets others. Where I won't draw the line, where I draw the line is, is, is the othering and dehumanization. We shouldn't have tolerance for those things. But practicing radical empathy means understanding that there are people who walk through the world who have a completely different understanding of the world. And we have to maintain 
some kind of contact with them, some right. kind of line of communication. Right. And at the end of the day, you know, you mentioned, you know, a couple of minutes ago, you talk about insecurity. This is, this is a very, yes. it's a very unstable times and very insecure times. And this is something with which we can all empathize. Like the, yes. the white nationalist, the urban, you know, inner city, you know, person of color, they, they, they're both anxious about the future in a way, in different right. ways, right? But but they are, they're anxious about the future. And we are actually, I mean, we Jews are anxious about the future and everybody is. So maybe from that anxiety, we can, we can find some common ground too. In, in that essay you mentioned, um, Skin in the Game, you, you, you basically put, I mean, I'm simplif- oversimplifying it. As I said, everybody should read it. But you basically said that anti-Semitism is at the center of, of white supremacy, white nationalism, and racism. Can you briefly elaborate on that? Yes. So one of, one of the things that I talk about from having attended right white nationalist meetings. So I have spent 35 years working with communities, local governments, civil society to organize responses to, to hate crimes and what we call a white nationalist movement. Look, I think we have to do just a little playing with my glossary for a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so was going to tell you. Folks can understand. Between, yeah, not white nationalism right? and white supremacy. Like White supremacy, we hear racism, right? We hear all of these terms thrown around. Look, I talk about the differences of this in, in Skin in the Game, but, but the short is, is I talk about white supremacy as a historic and present day system of inequality, right? That started with slavery, right? The the control of women's bodies, of course, and and the theft of native lands, right? And and the genocide of native people. That's, none of us are responsible for that. None of us were here when that happened, right? But we do live in the legacy of, of those things. And those systems are what we refer to as white supremacy. They're about exploitation and, and othering. That's different from the white nationalist movement. The the white nationalist movement forms in the aftermath of the civil rights movement in this country. Hmm. And it is trying to answer the question around how it lost, right, to black organizing for civil rights. Who did this to us? Now, look, white supremacy meant that they were never going to believe that it was black people who just self-organized for rights. So they created a conspiracy, one they borrowed from Europe, right? The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, this idea of a global conspiracy. Uh, Folks who lost, right, segregation clung to this anti-Semitic conspiracy that answered the question for them. See, they didn't lose the Black people because that's impossible, right? They saw Black people as being unable, right, to to beat white superiority in their minds. So they're able to take that and place the blame on Jews. And they began to adopt this global conspiracy that is basically a retelling of the protocols, right? That there is a Jewish conspiracy that seeks to enslave white Christian America. That is the rhetoric we hear when we hear the replacement theory, right? right? That's led to mass killings in this country, not just of Jews, such as the Tree of Life, right? And, uh, but also attacks on Latinos in uh, Gilroy, California, 
right? El Paso, attacks on African-American uh, uh, church worshipers in Charleston, attacks on the Sikh community, attacks on Muslims. At the end of the day, right, Jews and non-Jews are dying from this anti-Semitic conspiracy. And so I talk about this anti-Semitic conspiracy, and I talk a little bit about how it's fueling the white nationalist movement a social movement, not a system like white supremacy, right. that seeks to overthrow American democracy. Here's what we have to understand at the end of the day. White nationalists see the United States as being overtaken by a multiracial right, revolution, right? And it sees now democracy as a threat. So it seeks to rid, right? Not go back to the days of past, right? But it seeks to rid the country of people of color and Jews all together in order to create an all-white ethnostate. That's white nationalism, and it's driven by anti-Semitism, which means if we don't confront the larger anti-Semitism in American society, we will be ill-equipped to challenge the, the anti-Semitism within this white nationalist movement because we won't recognize it when we see it. Right, and, and it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned in your, in your essay that there was at a time this idea of creating white white only enclaves in in certain states now and probably after the trump era or during the trump era it sort of became sort of a national aspiration right yes it's yes. not about just let's give us a you know quote unquote white reservation where we can be all white it's just let's actually quote unquote take back the country that's that's right we're actually now seeing candidates who are running for president openly saying on social media and uh, in social media posts, not everyone should have the right to vote in this country, right? right? Saying openly, right, that uh, uh, that is a, a stripping away of civil rights progress in this country. And we should be clear, there's lots of nostalgia around Black Jewish relationships in, in the 60s. There's also Right, a lot of what I think uh, disrespect towards the Black Jewish relationship uh, within the 1960s. Look, it didn't represent the entire communities. Right. right, that's that's an overstatement. But it should be clear that there was Jewish leadership, community leadership, right, and institutional leadership, and Black community leadership and institutional leadership that understood that to advance civil rights in this country, that that coalition needed to be strengthened, that there needed to be this Black Jewish coalition. There is a misunderstanding that somehow Jews showed up to, to just help out, right? That this is why I talk about Jews have skin in the game, right? right? The, the civil rights movement was a broad-based movement that sought specific rights to to actually address grievances that were existing in society. And the three biggest grievances, right, were of course segregation, right, in American society, racial mm -hmm. segregation that impacted both blacks and Jews in American mm -hmm. society, right? The redlining of Jews. But the second was the access to the vote, right? That every American citizen should, who is an adult, should have the right to have their vote casted. But there's a third that we often don't talk about, or it gets talked about in very charged ways around the issue of immigration, right? Kind right. of racializing the conversation. But the truth is, is that the civil rights movement uh, also 
shifted immigration law in this country as part of its core mission. And it was in direct response to the anti-Semitism that prevented Jews from fleeing the pogroms and Nazi Europe, right? Every American, everyone listening to this should remember that Anne Frank's family was turned away from the United States because of xenophobic immigration policy that impacted the Jewish community in horrifying ways. Because that Jews were was not, the civil yeah. rights movement. Because yeah, Jews, Jews were not were considered not white. We're not they were white. not now, considered white. But but you we see now you know some some great examples of of black Jewish partnership in in, in fighting for these things. But but we also see yes. like you know some strain in the relationship. And I think, you know, it's due to intersectionality, to relation to Israel, with changes in the Jewish community and in the Black community. What's what's your diagnosis of the situation of that partnership that was so important in the 60s and, and after that, too? I mean, it was an important relationship because they were two communities that were culturally aligned, right, right. In, in values. Both communities have a deep-seated value around justice and equity in the United States. Nearly every poll shows that that call for equity and opportunity and safety, uh, the Black and Jewish community score usually the highest, right, on, on those calls. So there's a natural affinity between the Black and Jewish communities in, in this way. We should also remember in the 60s, right? So the the 1960s civil rights movement really starts in the 1940s, right? As Black veterans are coming back from the atrocities of of World War II, right? They've seen with their own eyes something very unique within that Black generation, right? They saw other white people, right? Folks they perceived as white Jews treated in a racialized way right, through the outcomes, learning what was happening and what had happened to Jews in in Europe. So that's one. Black veterans saw the contradictions, and then they came home and faced the similar discriminations that had set the stage, right, for the Holocaust in in Europe. So so Black folks were motivated in, in that way. But Jewish leaders and community members who had fled the pogroms, right, also were motivated by the contradictions of inequality that they saw in the United States, facing their own discrimination and othering, right? And watching it happen to Black people and the call within Jewish spirituality, right? To embrace changing the world had an effect in that moment that brought segments of the two communities together. Now, look, it wasn't easy. It wasn't, you know, I, we, we think somehow that everyone adored that coalition, right? No one adored Blacks and Jews coming together in the 1950s and 60s. No one's going to adore it in the in the 2020s, too. It's <laughs> super complicated, right? right? But it was powerful. And right. it was powerful because it was value-laden, right? Mm-hmm. By two communities with rooted histories, yeah. right? In discrimination, that made it powerful then and make it powerful today. Why is it so challenging now? I I think for for a a number of reasons, right? We we live in a society that doesn't see the value in Black Jewish coalition building, right? Or if it does, it only sees it in a nostalgic way. 
And so much of the focus goes into the controversy, right? We feed much more in the controversies than in the alliances that that are made. So for instance, Western State Center where I work, right? Uh, uh, We talk about the tensions between blacks and Jews, but Western State Center is a black led board, right? So the board of directors is all African-American, but it believes in multi-racial constituency building, right? Most of the staff are blacks and Jews, blacks and Jews, most of our senior fellows, right? Most of our leadership network is made up of of black folks and, and Jews. And we work together every day, right? And I think we're not alone in that. What I think is we've gotten the narrative shifted. We're, we're focusing on the on the hard things, which right. we should, without telling the stories of the things that are actually working. I think there's also tension for another reason. I want to come back to kind of the external stresses in the world right yeah. now. Right, we're all under so much stress. You look at the at the amount of anti-Semitic hate crimes. This doesn't get said enough by non-Jews. Yeah. You look at the numbers of anti-Semitic hate crimes being reported here in the United States. I just saw another story four days ago of an individual Jewish man being attacked, right, with a fire extinguisher and and then physically assaulted, right, in in Brooklyn, New York, right? Yeah, it's a daily occurrence in Brooklyn. it's It's a daily occurrence in Brooklyn. We're watching the leafleting. We're watching the the mass attacks, right, on Jewish institutions or at least motivated by anti-Semitism. It's it's horrifying, right? And you think about these stressors. And when you're under these kinds of stressors, the thing you want to do is turn inward, right? When things are scary outside, Mm. you, you come home. So I think what's happening is the dynamic of folks turning inward. And both communities right now, I don't know if I can use this word, we're with funders across the board, so yeah. so excuse me, but both the Black and Jewish communities are catching hell in the United yeah. States, right? Yeah. yeah, Under a lot of pressure. And under that pressure, it makes it even harder, right, to, to close ranks. And so we have to triple down, yeah. right, it- on our dedications of reaching across. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. And, and I'm not so conversant about the internal conversations within the Black community, but is there any realization of of how sensitive are certain issues for for the Jewish community? I mean, issues around Israel, for example, and and anti-Zionism and and, and the exclusion of Jews that define themselves as Zionists, which is 85% of us, um, from progressive spaces. Is, Is that is that being seen in the in the black community? The, the you know why some Jews were upset with the movement for Black Lives platform and and stuff like that. So it it is being seen. There's there's you know different levels. So I won't speak for the black community. Right, but, right. But it's it's a diverse from, community. It's yeah, your view. It's, yeah, and it's becoming even more diverse. Right? right. So by I like to tell folks within seventy five years. Um. Uh. Within seventy five years. Uh, African-Americans who are the descendants, right, of folks who survived chattel slavery, like myself, hmm. we will be the minority of Black folks in the United States, right? This is this is a fascinating thing. So the Black community today includes Afro-Latinos, yes. African immigrants, and descendants yes. of slavery from, you know, from, from the U.S. So what is the percentage right. of that, roughly? And, and, and biracial. 
right? And by, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, I'm and putting biracial. Yeah. Yeah. So African-Americans, right, are, are still the majority, hmm. right? Quickly over, you know, quickly on the heels are, are African immigrants, right? And mm-hmm. descendants of African immigrants, including folks from the Caribbean. And then, of course, the Afro-Latino population is, is growing in the United States. And then, of course, those who identify as biracial or multiracial uh, uh, is also growing. You know, it's fascinating because it shows kind of the even the diversity within the Black community. So that's one thing folks yeah. should, should understand right? That it's a diverse Black community. And on top of that, we live in a society, if we can just accept for a second, right? Uh, Entertain with me for a second, that we live in a society that is anti-Semitic. Now, it doesn't make it a bad, I'm not here, I'm not bashing on America. That's that's not the point of this. I'm just recognizing that that anti-Semitism is not just a set of behaviors, it's a worldview, and all of us are influenced by that worldview, some more extremely, right? But all of us are influenced by it in some ways. And it's in those ways that anti-Semitic tropes come into play. And anti-Semitic tropes, as we know from numerous studies, are more likely to show up in communities that are vulnerable, right? Why? Because bias expresses itself mostly when communities are under stress or feel like they're under stress. So seeing anti-Semitism in the Black community isn't actually surprising, right, or shocking. If anti-Semitism functions in the way that we think it does, of course it would show up there. Of course it would show up in in other marginalized communities. So it exists there on, on on a more generalized level. And Folks are doing great work of engaging around that and and talking about that. I'm seeing much more conversation in the Black community than I used to on that topic. The question of Israel, right, and and Zionism, right, is is much more of a conversation, I think, within kind of the Black left and progressive spaces, right, rather than the, the more general Black community, though. Right, we're as aware of the world as everyone else, right? And the black community tends to see the world through a human rights lens, right? That's how we understand our own experience, and that's how we look through other experiences. So there is a conversation there, and there is right this line that gets crossed around critiques of Israel that lead, you know, I believe into anti-Semitic tropes or or anti-Semitism. But I actually think the conversation is better than it was 10 years ago, I, I, I would argue. What, right? what do you think it's made it better? Talking about anti-Semitism. I think the more we talk about anti-Semitism, the more we normalize the, the conversation. When we weren't talking about it for, for 10 years, we weren't talking about anti-Semitism. Right. When I would travel around to speak, right? Uh, Jewish leaders uh, would tell me that they didn't think anti-Semitism was a problem in the U.S. any longer, right? And that pretty much was the case uh, until Tree of Life, right? And and so I think we lost 10 years of getting people used to talking about anti-Semitism, wrestling, building muscle around engaging their own anti-Semitism and seeing it in American society. But now that folks are getting some of that muscle, they're able to have a more sophisticated conversation. 
conversations that don't fall back into anti-Semitic tropes. We're more likely to to see anti-Semitic tropes when they happen, right? right? right. So we're more likely to point it out. So it looks like there's more controversy. But the truth is, is we just have more tools. So the conversation is much more sophisticated, much more visible. And we're actually all much more bought into the conversation than we were a decade ago. Yeah. And and interestingly enough, I, I, I tend to say that, and I don't know if you agree with me, that, that ultimately this distinction between so-called right-wing and left-wing anti-Semitism is, is a spurious distinction because ultimately the art, if yes. you... If if I would present you a blind <laughs> without telling you this comes from the ultra progressive left or this comes from the far right, and I would go to the core of the argument, it would be the same. The argument is there's a conspiracy, I mean, you know, led by Jews to do harm to the world, you know, and yes. and, and ultimately they're both saying the same with different yes. with different nuances but is that you think is that a valid way of looking at it yes no i think you're right i think you're absolutely right on this i think there is a danger now some disagree with me but i think there's a danger in talking about left right anti-semitism there is only what i used to say is there's only anti-semitism in america and right. how political movements choose to tap into that anti-Semitism. And, and we need to be focused on, on the anti-Semitism. Now, look, folks will accuse me of both siderism. I, I, I'm not, right? I understand the risk of the anti-Semitism being organized by the white nationalist movement yeah. in this moment. We have, I can run reams of data, right, yeah. around the, the dangers of that. But what I'm saying is, if we don't confront anti-Semitism in American society, yeah. right, we're not going to be able to stop any of the of the anti-Semitism by the white nationalist movement or elements of the left or, or any other place. And that's why raising the conversation within the mainstream rather than in the fringe, right, becomes so important in this moment. So you you wrote, speaking of that, you wrote, um, and I quote, one thing I've learned is that you can't convince a person of something they don't already kind of believe. So yes. when you bring anti-Semitism in the community, what you're, you said, you, merely, you merely organize the bigotry that already exists. Anti-Semitism exists. Therefore, white nationalists are tapping into it to build political power. So yes. the question, I mean, it's, I think it's a fascinating insight, but does it pay politically to tap into yeah. that undercurrent of nationalism? I mean, I think I would say it does, but I would want to know what you think. Yeah, I think the Black and Black community and the Jewish community and any other community that believes in, in multiracial America, right, and the importance of mm -hmm. that as a way of moving us all forward together, should make sure that they don't benefit from that. We right. need to send a real clear message that there's absolutely no benefit in this. And But right now, there is a benefit, right? It's providing a story, right. a story that is holding those who believe, right, for whatever reasons, right? We can talk about social media manipulation. We can talk about uh, the other ways that folks' fears and anxieties are being exploited, right? right? We can talk about the real challenging conditions in, 
in the world right now of inequality and, and climate and poverty. But at the end of the day, what I'm saying is white nationalists wouldn't be tapping into anti-Semitism unless it, it already existed. If it didn't, right. If, right? It, if, if and, it didn't exist and if it, and if it didn't pay. And yeah. one of the ways we can ensure that it doesn't pay is we can all admit, right, that we've been influenced by anti-Semitism. It doesn't make us bad people. Right? Even Jews. Again, even Jews have yeah, been influenced. Not even, by... even Jews. All of us. We have been, we have been taught tropes. Right. Right. That we hold in in subconscious. And I like to give a parallel to this because folks say, what are you talking? And so I say, "Okay, let me let me put it in another context. We would all readily admit. Right. And we find it horrifying that. Right. America. Right. White America. But folks of color in America and even black Americans have been socialized to fear black men. Right. And we can show you all kinds of data of how that works. And all of us are impacted by that socialization. Right. right. All of us try to work on that socialization in lots of different ways. So we're, I'm just admitting something that exists in society. Right. And that has a lot of implications. Right. Studies and reports have been done around what that means for black men in America, right? How we approach black men has a real impact on their lives, on opportunity, on our society, right? We lose a trillion dollars a year, right? From racial discrimination, according to Chase Manhattan and, wow. and the study that they did, right? Uh, so these are real costs. All I'm saying, all I'm saying is anti-Semitism functions in the same way. Right. And we pick up the same stereotypes and tropes that play like tapes in our heads and left unconfronted, left unacknowledged, right? They influence our interaction with one another at a time when communities need to be unified, right? About the importance of opportunity and equity and the rule of law in our society. That's why anti-Semitism is dangerous. It's unacknowledged. You know, you, you, you talk about this with, you know, with issues of justice and racial justice and anti-Semitism with, with a lot of passion. And, and I'm, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit of your upbringing and your experience in your youth in, in Skin in the Game. But what, what do you think were the formative experiences? I mean, if we go personal for a while, like yeah. what are the formative experiences that, that made you the, the activist? you are today and the thoughtful activist that you are today? I mean, I, I grew up really working poor, right? And in, in a lot of poverty, you know, I, I grew up from basically eighth grade through high school, right? In a motel, right? That my mom paid for by the, by the week, right? That, that's how I grew up in America. I saw the contradictions very early on. But what makes me unique Besides being Gen X, right, we're a very small grouping of folks. And there may be something uh, to our specific generation around this. But we're also the kids who actually came up in the midst of desegregation and integration. There was a very specific moment of time, right, where our parents didn't know what to do, right, about this integration of the public schools and everything. And so there was a moment where young folks between the ages of 13 right, in 18, we're actually trying, having to figure out how to negotiate one another. And, 
you know, we didn't know each other and our cultures were different, right? And the arrival of punk rock, I tell folks, the arrival of punk rock music and hip hop, right? Opened up a space that allowed us to build a different identity, right? Not an alternative, right? So it wasn't alternative to my blackness. I wasn't picking this over my blackness. It just became another identity right. that was for young people as strong, right, as our other identities. And so it broke down for a quick moment, at least a lot of walls that got us in the room together. Right. And the music kept us in the room together as much as possible. So that made a difference. Being victim of, of uh, uh, hate crimes at an early age, right, from school integration, having to go back and forth on a bus and walking to this new school and white adults driving by, right, not kids, white adults driving by and shouting out, go back to Africa and the N-word, right, uh, chasing us. Those are things that really yeah. had an impact on me. But the third is, I also tell folks, I'm honest with folks. I don't want folks to be surprised, right? I'm a progressive, right? When you talk about liberals, when you talk about leftists, you mean me, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm that. I'm actually proudly like like yeah. that person. But being that person, right? The, the the thing that I believe doesn't mean the world just because I hold a worldview doesn't mean everyone must hold that worldview, right? It's values that I want to bring into conversation. So that as a society, we can find the best way forward. This is my country. There is no other country for me in that way, right? This is for, for good or ill, right? I tell folks I'm a patriot because right. I actually believe the best aspirations of American society, that we can be this multiracial democracy, that our best days are still ahead of us. But we are in a very hard moment. And in hard moments, right, we need to come together and take care of our house. Someone is trying to burn down the actual house while we're arguing over the color of the drapes, right? Or that you stepped on my toe. And I'm not saying there aren't serious issues in America. What I'm saying is we can't have any of those arguments if the house is burnt down. Right. Right, right. So let's stop for a second. Like when you were talking about going to school and being, you know, you know, being insulted by people, it just brings flashbacks for me on my own, my own childhood. And you know, I go to a Jewish day school, and there were people standing near the Jewish day school, and as we kids were walking, they would shout stuff, and it would never occur to me that that was not normal, <laughs> you know? Like, yes. I see, like, when I, I remember when I first saw somebody reporting a swastika as an anti-Semitic incident, I was, like, befuddled. I said, like, like that's daily occurrence. Like, there's a Jewish building, people will paint a swastika on it. You don't even notice it. It's, and, at, mm. and at some point, you snap out of it, and you said, no, 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 this is not normal. Like, this is not the way people should live, and and and... It makes you wonder how much soft discrimination, as it were, not soft, it can be very physical, and like it was in your case, but we endure and just normalize in, in our daily lives. It's such a, it sends such a message. We do, we have to normalize it so that we can get through, through our days. 
I mean, I, I have to tell you, one of the things that I did not expect, I wrote Skin in the Game, I think it released, I think, five years ago, June, right? It was right before the terrible event at Charlottesville. And I knew I was going to have conversation. I was a non-Jew writing about anti-Semitism. I knew the Jewish community was not going to let me get away with that um, um, <laughs> without some discussions, right? That there was going to be lots of, of, of conversation. One of the things that has really moved me has been the, the number of older Jewish individuals who have approached me and told me the stories of discrimination, humiliation, right? Anti-Semitism that they experienced as young people, right? In their communities, sometimes being the only family in their communities, sometimes being isolated in, in public schools, right? Have, having to really run home, right? Uh, the, the stories, these were stories that took place here in the United States. And stories that were never told, right? Never shared with children or 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 grandchildren. So I, I and 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 for some individuals in the Jewish community, no experience of anti-Semitism at all, right? Very mixed depending on, on context. But I suspect if those stories start getting told publicly, more stories will start to be shared, yeah. right? Yeah. And not just about what was happening then but things that, that happen every day now. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, it's exhausting. And it creates that common ground. Like, I mean, I, I sometimes, when when I hear people talk about Jewish white privilege and what have you, and I tell them my story, well, that's, you know, kind of you tell your story of going to school. It's very similar to my story of going to school. So it's, you know, here's the common ground there that, you know, that when we try to label each other in, di in different ways, it gets lost. But, but let me shift gears for a, for a minute. Um, tell us a little bit about the work you do with the Western State Center. Yeah. So Western State Center is a multiracial civil rights organization uh, based in, in Portland, Oregon. And uh, it works uh, in the region of the Pacific Northwest and nationwide right, to advance racial and gender equity. And we believe that that helps sustain inclusive democracy, right? People-centered, transparent, and accountable government. We think government matters, right? Governance by and for the people, right? Uh, we don't need kings and queens to, to tell us what to do, right? We can do this as a society. And Government is the best vehicle upon which that governance can happen. So Western State Center works to, to do that by advancing racial and gender equity. We do it through trainings, right, of, of leaders. And we don't mean just community leaders, right? We mean a singer-songwriter, uh, uh, right. soccer supporters, right, knitting groups, right? There's lots of places, real estate associations, uh, business associations, we think there are a lot of places where leadership and community resides and and we seek to kind of support them right and helping to navigate the world in the strongest ways possible so that leadership development is important the the second is we work a lot we think stories are important that right. we have to tell stories that not only frighten us but but inspire us that are 
grounded in, in honest telling. And so we, we, we raise a lot of stories. The third is we advance, we work with communities to advance accountability. We're one of the few organizations that actually has helped communities hold elected officials accountable for promoting political violence in real ways. And we've brought together Republicans and Democrats together, right? Liberals and conservatives to uphold that accountability. And, and we're proud of, of that campaigning. The, but the coalition of the sane, as I call it. The coalition of the sane, right? Yeah. That, that look, we may not be in agreement around politics, but someone has told us and convinced us that that's more important than the values that we actually hold in common. Right. And what we're saying is, uh, look, we're not saying politics is bad, or we're glad that we have experts in politics. We're saying it's insufficient to explain the makeup of America, right? We're also a country of values. We're also a country of aspirations, and those should hold equal weight in these conversations. So that's what we do. And we're an organization that has dealt with political violence, right, in our region, for a very long time, much of what the country is experiencing, the Pacific Northwest and mountain states experienced in the 80s and 90s, the, the bombings, the, the attacks, the hate crimes, the deep political divisions. And so we felt it was important to step up our leadership. And we felt that we needed to do three things. We needed to let folks know white nationalism was a threat in this country. Two, that it could not be successfully managed and tackled without also uh, accepting that anti-Semitism fuels that movement. And it's an anti-Semitism that functions within mainstream American society, right? That it's basically the call is coming from inside the house. And the third, right, is that we don't, yes, we should feel fear and anxiety. It's a very serious time in America. I'm not here to make light of that or, or to deny that. But there are things we can do. And one of the things we can all do is to make a commitment to lean into one another, right? And we build tools, toolkits. We have combating white nationalism in schools, which is over 60,000 educators have been the recipients of that toolkit. We have 75 educators who are trainers who provide this information. And we have a number of different tools and, and trainings that we provide to folks who don't want to be immobilized in this period. Right. And besides your work at the um, Western State Center, you're also a funder. So you could, you could be A, you could be a yes. JFN member here. <laughs> you, yes. You, yes. I, <laughs> you, you are with the Proteus I, Fund. I am. So I have my own history in philanthropy, right? right? That goes back from the 80s. I've served on the boards of, of a number of foundations. And I've worked in philanthropy as a program officer at the Ford Foundation, overseeing the civil rights portfolio there. And also mm -hmm. as a program officer at Atlantic Philanthropies, overseeing the national security and rights portfolio, as well as the immigrant rights portfolio there. And so that's, um, that subject, we need to have a separate podcast on that, on your experience as a, as a philanthropist, as I call them. That's right. I've, uh, I have done my time in philanthropy. Currently, I'm the chair of, of, of the Proteus Fund, a phenomenal foundation that connects philanthropy, right? It's, its mission is to connect philanthropy with the front lines of, of the social justice movement. And so we create dynamic relationships between progressive philanthropists, movement leaders, and, and other allies that we hope go far beyond transactional grant making. And, and we do that through staffing and supporting 
uh, trusted positions amongst funders, right, field actors that allow us to support collaborative grant making. And it has been exciting. We, we have funder and donor cohorts, right? We provide fiscal sponsorship support to projects. And, and the organization, both uh, board and staff, are made up of the diversity that makes up the social justice field in this country. It's, it's quite an honor to be chair. And uh, philanthropy is still important, right, um, uh, in this country. It is part of civil society and civil society's leadership. Amazing. The Proteus Philanthropist Committee is, um, is a foundation or is a collaborative of funders? It's a public foundation, meaning we raise our dollars, right, oh, see, and, and yes, distribute yes, them. But one of the ways that dollars are raised and distributed is through staffing donor collaboratives. Meaning, oh, I see. you know, maybe a group of eight or nine donors or and funders may be concerned about an issue and they want to come together and learn about that issue and engage that issue. We, we provide both the space and the support for that to happen, right? And, and to try to connect those dollars to the front lines of social justice. Very interesting, which is not, not that dissimilar to what JFN does in some of its work. Not very dissimilar at all. Fa facilitating collective action among funders. You know, and since we're talking about philanthropy, and I get close to the to, to the end here of this of this, I hope, first of many conversations. What do you think is the role of philanthropy here? I mean, we I work with a community of funders, a very diverse community of funders. We have left, right, Orthodox, secular, Israelis, Americans, Europeans, young, old, male, female. So how can philanthropy play a role in in addressing the challenges of anti-Semitism, white supremacy? intolerance in, in every part of the political spectrum? I love that question. I <laughs> think it's uh, the most important question. You know, the first thing I would say to funders, uh, and, and, and particularly JFN, the most powerful thing you can do is to prove to the rest of the world, right, that you can stay in the room together. That's, that's the most the most powerful thing. If you all can stay in the room together, it means all of us can stay in the room to, together. And I think that's a really important goal. It seems like a really simple goal in, in these moments, uh, yeah. but it's but it's a hard time, right? It's not, the, yeah. The, <laughs> it's, right? it's not at all, um, yeah. We, we have to stay in the room that we are in right now. Those relationships are important. And what I'll say, right, quite honestly, this is me talking inside. Usually I don't say these things publicly, but I'll be really clear since I'm talking to philanthropy specifically right now, right? Uh, we think those relationships are important right now. That's how we, you know, because that's where philanthropy, right? We, right. We're looking for the, for the magic fix, right? We're, we're looking for that thing we can do really quickly. But the truth is this, this is someone who, I'm, this is me speaking as someone was organized against political violence, right? And the attack on democracy, right? The rise of bigotry for over 35 years. I'm here to say as a philanthropist, the relationships we are investing in right now, including our own, aren't important right now. But they're gonna yeah. be really important 10 years from now when we all need to find each other, right? To, to figure out how we move our society and our world forward. And we can't do that 
if those relationships aren't built and strengthened now under stress. So we have to keep these relationships together and we have to, we can't put it just on the staff right. at JFN to hold those relationships, right? Every member. So that's the first thing. I'm making that a big deal because I think it's really the big priority. Now yes. there's other things that we might consider, right? Uh, JFN funders, right, may figure out what are those things they can fund together, right, based off of values, right? The work JFN does around engaging poverty, right, in very unique ways. I think that that's very important, right? Uh, You're modeling, you're practicing, right, how that happens. The third is this. This is just a message to, to funders, right? We've watched authoritarian sways in other societies, right? India, Hungary, Poland, uh, Russia, right? And, and other places, right? And Brazil. And one of the things that we should recognize is in the second wave of that, of, of that kind of authoritarian moment, right? The attack has turned to philanthropy trying to cut oh, off yeah. philanthropic dollars to civil society, right? And I think philanthropy needs to be having serious conversations. Look, I'm looking at a recent study that was just released in, in California, right? It's a, a study by the California Firearm Violence Research Center. And it showed half of Americans expect a civil war in the United States in the next few years. I'm gonna say that again, right? The California Firearm Violence Research Center released a survey of of Americans that shows half of Americans expect a civil war in the United States. That is what Americans are telling us. And we have to meet this moment with the same energy, right? We can't sit back and look at this as if we are observers. We too as philanthropists have skin in the game and we have to protect the infrastructure of philanthropy and we have to make sure civil society, right, isn't abandoned in this moment. It has to be robust, right, and it has to be able to respond at, at the community level. I think those are the two big things. I have other suggestions. I wrote an essay actually called The Case for Leisure for mm-hmm. Philanthropy for Active Civic Engagement, or mm-hmm. also known as PACE. Uh, folks can find that article I lay out actually a number of things that I think philanthropy can be doing in this moment, but staying in the room together, right? Finding ways to align funding and then preparing now, right? To protect philanthropic mission, to fund civil society are the three important things that philanthropy should be doing in this moment. What you said about authoritarian governments attacking philanthropy it's it's so true and i hadn't put that together like and it's all every authoritarian regime like stalin for example um did a crackdown on foreign ngos early in his mandate i worked for an organization called the jdc the joint it 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 was persecuted by by stalin for being and uh, and now you see too putin is Banning philanthropy and, and Bolsonaro is doing the same and uh, interesting. And I mean, we know since, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville that philanthropy and voluntary associations are big threats to the autocratic mentality and they are 
according to Tocqueville, one of the bases of democracy. So I think that walking the talk and exemplifying those values that you that you mentioned ours is really is really important. Right. So and we'll even fund folks, we'll even fund folks we don't fully agree with, that yeah. we're not in full 100% agreement with, right? Because this piece of the alignment is so important, right? right. And, and uh, those relationships are also important uh, in their own right. So you're, you're, you're right. I think you're, that history, that history, needs to be shared and said over and yeah. over again, right? So that we begin to, to we need to be responsible. We are the governance yeah. of philanthropy yeah. and philanthropy is about to come under attack. Yeah. Just to finish, is there the one thing that gives you the most hope that you're seeing around? There are amazing things that are that are giving me hope. There's amazing things that are really giving me hope, and and they're little glimpses at at the future, right? They're conversations and engagements uh, that are happening. But but really, what gives me hope for the future is is this: the majority, speaking for the United States, right? The majority of the country seeks a more inclusive democracy, right? The majority of the country is concerned about the growing attacks on democracy. They don't see attacks on democracy as leading us towards, towards solution. And that gives me a lot of hope. But what I'm seeing is just ordinary Americans, everyday Americans, stepping up in really real ways, right, from undocumented immigrants who are showing up in the midst of climate disasters, right, to, to volunteer, digging folks out who probably uh, cast votes that weren't even in the interest of, of these undocumented immigrants, right? Digging them out of flooding, forest fires, like people just showing up in, in just phenomenal ways uh, uh, right now. But I think of the singer-songwriter. We do some work with uh, singer-songwriters who have approached us who are concerned about the, the politicization of their fan bases, right? Watching their fan bases going after each other and sought us out to try to figure out how do they talk to their fans, right? How do they get their fans back aligned? How do they get them talking about values rather than, than politics? And I, there is a one singer-songwriter who, who we work with, working class guy, a kid out of Western Pennsylvania, right? He makes his money by traveling. He plays small ships, right? Yeah. Of 200, 300 people. He's on the road all the time. And, you know, his brother, was a racist skinhead, right? Who's now in prison, who was, you know, terrible. And, and you talk to the singer-songwriter, you, you watch his journey, right? You, you, you watch how he's trying to traverse the, the world. He's, he's white. And you just can't help but be inspired, right? He doesn't have to do this. He right. could probably float through the rest of his career. But he thinks the values of our society are so important, right? That, that he's leaning in. And I think we're seeing more and more people, right, reject the, the political partisanship and saying, let's lean into our values of kindness, opportunity, safety, health, community. And the stories coming out of that are super exciting. Kindness, values, opportunity. I mean, I think we have a lot of, we have a lot of things to hold on to. So thank you, Eric, very much. Such a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks so much to Eric K. Ward. You can learn more about the Western States Center at westernstatescenter.org.
proteusfund.org in plural and about the Proteus Fund at proteusfund.org. Thank you so much for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send our way. Please write to us at communications at jfunders.org. You can keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter for my own personal opinions at at Spokoini. I leave you with a quote from Audre Lorde who said, it's not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. So as we just did with Eric, Keep giving, keep celebrating your differences, and join us next time on What Gives.